Some people take the straight path in life. But at Arizona State University, we respect your twists and turns. They make our online students more driven to excel in their professional lives. That's why our personalized suite of services empowers you with innovative resources and staff that sticks with you. Make your next turn with one of our 300-plus programs at ASU, a top 10 university for online bachelor's programs. Tap to learn more or visit us at asuonline.asu.edu. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. How are you doing? Hope you're doing great. Okay, on this episode, I interviewed Matthias Roberts. He wrote a book called Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. He is a psychotherapist specializing in religious and spiritual trauma. Let me just say, this was a really powerful interview. We talk a lot about the digital space, community, how do we heal from trauma? What actually is trauma? What does it mean to heal from religious trauma? How do we um, get to a place where we can open ourselves back up to community again? Matthias is wonderful, just a, a, a beautiful human and just so wise. So pick up his book now. It is out wherever books are sold. It's well worth the read. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Matthias. Of course, friends, thank you so much for either watching this on YouTube or listening to it on podcasts. We are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate rediscovering their faith. If you want to donate to this work, that would be so helpful. We are totally donor-based. What that means is that the only way this podcast makes it to your eyeballs or your earballs, that's even a thing. It's not. I'm just saying. It's because people have paid the way for that to happen. That's why we don't have a Patreon account. That's why there's nothing behind a subscription because people have been generous and have donated and that enables this work to happen across all of our platforms. If you want to become one of those people, a monthly donation helps us out so much. A one-time donation helps us out so much. All donations are tax deductible in the US. So you get a tax write-off and we are totally financially transparent. You can go to our website, see where all the money goes. We have no secrets here. Thank you so much for your generosity. It truly helps us keep the porch light on to let other people know that they're not alone as they renegotiate their faith. And if you want to share this podcast or subscribe to our YouTube channel or leave us a review, 
that would be great too. It all helps. It all helps. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Matthias. Talk to you all later on. All right, friends. Okay, this will be another exciting uh, conversation. I have on the podcast Matthias Roberts. He is a psychotherapist specializing in religious and spiritual trauma and the author of Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, and now also the author of this new book, Holy Runaways. So Matthias, thank you so much for making time. It means the world. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Okay, let's start in the beginning. You know, give us a little bit about who you are. How did you grow up and how did you end up becoming someone who focuses on really um, religious trauma and spiritual abuse, et cetera? Yeah. Well, this will probably come as a surprise to no one. Like okay. I, I grew up in deep kind of fundamentalist evangelicalism. No way. Uh, <laughs> no. Come on. Really? <laughs> surprise. And, uh, yeah. And, and you know, grew up kind of in uh, the Northwoods of Wisconsin and then moved to the cornfields of Iowa. So, you know, really rural communities. Yeah. Was homeschooled. Uh, and you know, all the way through, love it. Solidarity, <laughs> solidarity, my friend. Yeah, and you know, in the in the midst of that, I started realizing around eleven that I was gay. Uh, mm. Although that's not the language I used, but like that's that's what you know what it ended up being that I was into men instead of women, and that like it ruined my life really. Like, and um, you know, experienced a lot of. You know, I, I didn't go through conversion therapy explicitly, thankfully, um, mm. but that was the world that I was in, was one of, I need to change this in order to be able to be loved and accepted. Yeah. Uh, and once I started getting out of that world, I started trying to find answers to these things, like the question, like, am I okay? Mm. <laughs> Essentially, through theology, which I found some of it, but discovered that through the world of counseling and psychology and therapy that that answered this question am i okay Mm. in in some ways far more tangibly than the theological questions Mm. and but i think they go hand in hand um yeah but that's kind of how i stumbled into that realm of therapy and then you know ended up becoming a therapist and and now kind of how i do and why i do this work now, your your book's subtitle is Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. So uh, are you still a person who identifies as Christian in some shape or form? Like, what is your own spiritual journey through navigating all this stuff? Yeah, I imagine you'll relate with this. It's, it's, a, it's a hard question to give a firm answer to. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot separate myself from the Christian tradition and, right. and hold this... I mean, if, if we had to categorize my belief system, my spirituality, which I definitely have, it, it sits within Christianity for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do I call myself a Christian? I don't know. <laughs> mm, mm. It, it, it's it's <sighs> difficult. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I I think a lot of people listening feel that. Yeah, I'm someone who had to really renegotiate my theology. Right? It wasn't so much for me about like, oh, am I? Do I believe in God? It was, what do I believe about this God? Yes, what right. do I believe about this Christian tradition? And is there is there any room here for how I'm thinking about life, or is there not? Right. right. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that that makes sense. So why the focus for you on really on it seems like you know you wrote a book about creating a healthy sex life. So there's some elements of sexuality and just you know sex in general. 
And then also, you know, you're specializing in religious and spiritual trauma. Obviously, psychology is a big field. You can go in a lot of different places. Why those things? You know, through my own story of working through these things myself, I I realized I am not the only one who deals with these things, which, you know, is an obvious statement. But at the time, I didn't know that. (laughs) And so working through these things myself and realizing there are so many other folks out there, especially, you know, queer folks, although not just queer folks, but especially queer folks who are trying to figure out how do I hold these seemingly competing things together? Mm. I mean, I, I have always felt like I've had a deep belief in God, uh, in, in Jesus, and have also known that I am gay for a very long time. And I got really bored with the question of, can I be gay and Christian? Like right, I got right. bored of that quickly. You know, it was right. probably 24, 25. And I was like, there has to be something more. And I think that more for me was one, discovering like there are ways to move beyond this question, uh, which I think was deeply healing of, of like, I, I can be who I am. But, but two, I think when we heal from spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse, spiritual harm, that starts to open us up to practicing religion, spirituality, faith in in ways that are far more, it's an overused word, but embodied. Mm. And I really, really love helping people find that for themselves. Because I feel like I found that even if it's full of questions. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. So is your your new book, Holy Runaways, is it kind of designed for people who maybe are waking up for the first time that, oh, how I grew up in these spiritual places were not healthy? And like, how do I navigate that? What was the purpose of the book for you? I want the book to be a companion for folks. So mm-hmm. yeah, folks who are just waking up to this harm, absolutely. But I also wanted it to be a companion to folks who are a little bit further along on that pathway who are maybe far more disillusioned. <laughs> far more aware of their harm, who are asking this question of, sure, I've changed my belief systems, but how do I heal now? Right. Because those two are different things. We can change our beliefs without healing. Mm. And and this book is for those folks who are really wanting to dive into this process of, of healing and hopefully providing companionship for that. Yeah, you know, it is very interesting being in like this world where you're intersecting with so many other people. And we obviously know terms like deconstruction is really big right now. And like, okay, I'm deconstructing my faith or I've experienced the word harm is very, you know, uh, widely used by a lot of people to describe their experience. It was harmful. It was hurtful. And it is, it's something for me just to kind of behold, because a lot of people, I think even listening to this podcast would probably even say if they've been here for a while that who they were even maybe when they first found this account versus now are very different. I mean, I'm different. I'm not nearly mm-hmm. in my own uh, quote unquote deconstruction process, even though that term's a little overused these days, but in my own process, like I, I, I'm still pretty angry at like the state of a lot of things, but yeah. the anger is, is a different, it, it comes out very differently now. You know, I think before it was a little more raw, unfiltered and just like, fuck it. I, I don't care. Here's what I think. And now like I'm, I'm in like another stage of just, okay, so what are we actually doing here? Like what actually is the goal? You know? I mean, what are your thoughts on someone who I'm sure is very tapped into this online world of what's happening, 
you know, do you see pros to that? Are there cons to that? Like, how do we navigate some of that stuff? Because I feel like the online space in general is it's tricky to navigate without seeing people in proximity and just reading text, you know, et cetera. Yeah. It's incredibly tricky. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the thing here is like we, for many of us who grew up in these spaces, we never had permission to be angry. Like like anger was sin. Yeah. (laughs) Do not go to bed. Without, right. you know, like, <laughs> yeah, and and so, like, I think, and I think we see this online, we need to have those spaces to be able to be angry, to rage against, um, to be petty, <laughs> all of those things. Like, we, we absolutely need those spaces. And I, I think many folks are starting to realize, like, that particular kind of energy gets exhausted quickly and gets right. exhausting quickly. Right. Uh, and so then we're left with, yeah, what do we do? <laughs> How do we navigate this reality that some folks who are just coming into this space are really angry, right? Right. Need to hold a rigidity around their beliefs or what they don't believe. And those of us who have maybe are a little bit further along or in different spaces are saying, like, I don't feel as rigid anymore. I can hold nuance and complexity. Right. I think we're all on that same continuum, though. It is okay, I think, to leave a space that you have found healing in to find another space that might be more congruent with where you currently are. Mm. Um, I I think if we look at it as a spectrum, we can say, okay, this spot where I got to express my anger, that was good, but I don't need that anymore. Now, where are the people who have maybe metabolized that anger and are finding other ways of working with these things or who are re-exploring beliefs or you know whatever it looks like, we can continue to move because it's an evolution. Right. And I, I think a particular part of at least the brand of evangelicalism I was a part of was this mm. idea of you can never move. <laughs> right. This is it. Yeah. Uh, maybe you change churches because you don't like something the pastor said, but like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. 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 yeah so we have yeah. freedom there. I, that is helpful. You know, I, I agree. I think we've even experienced this in our own organization, like time and time again, where we'll get a DM saying, Hey, you know, thank you so much for your work. I'm, I'm no longer Christian. I'm just going to go ahead and move on. Or, Hey, like, um, your work was really helpful for me, but honestly, I'm just going to find some other spaces that I find a little more healing. And my, our answer is, yeah, like we totally get it, right? Like we don't have to be the place where you plant for the next 45 years. Like yes. maybe that's not very healthy, right? Right. But I do think to your point, I've also experienced too, where you've been in, like we have a private Facebook community, you know? Mm. And when we first started, there were moments where someone would come in new to this idea of deconstruction and then someone else who's a little more ahead of them had a different take and then they would butt heads because the person who's like new to this process is like, you're not hearing me, I'm not heard. and whatever. And the person's kind of ahead of them is like, no, I do hear you, but I also like can give you some wisdom. And then we have like this conflict, right? And you're also yeah. online. So yeah. we're not, it's not like two people, two people like talking to each other in conversation. You're reading text and you're reading your own tone into the text. Mm-hmm. And it just like becomes this whole, this yeah. whole thing. And I think, you know, I, 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 the reason why I'm kind of harping on this is because you are someone who is educated in this, in the world of psychology, like you've done the work. And whenever I could talk to someone who is knowledgeable, it helps. I think all of us, as we think about this online element that I think is different than a lot of people before us, right? Like you had maybe the early emergent church back in the day, which was some form of deconstruction, but they were not nearly as, um, on, they were not nearly as social media heavy because 
those things didn't exist then, right? Like our iPhone right. came into existence, what, 2007? Instagram, mm-hmm. 2015? Like, these things are not that old. And so I feel like a lot of people are like the next wave of, okay, we're, we're, we're rethinking things. We're not happy with, with our church experience. They found, and I'm one of them, a lot of help and solidarity online. And that's so important, right? But what I struggle with, and I'm someone who is running a nonprofit organization who is online, so I I think about this about this often. Is ultimately though, like people need other people in proximity to to who where they are embodied yes. to go on those random target runs, or just to have people that, that 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 they can get a cup of coffee with and talk to. And I I'm just wondering for you as an expert in this, like. Where do you see maybe some of the the benefits of, hey, I'm glad you found people online, but also like, hey, there's still a digital barrier here that can only get us so far. What are your thoughts on that? You, you know, to me, I, my mind immediately goes to this question of how are we actually able to regulate our nervous systems? Mm. And th- that is impossible through a screen. It is. Yeah. Uh, but it, Guilty. it <laughs> does make times. it a lot more difficult because of that reality of when we have a screen in front of us. We can project whatever we want onto that screen, right? Whatever right. we want onto the person on the other side, because there are not two bodies in a room negotiating with each other, right? So that is, to your point, where I think finding in-person community is so vital. Yeah, and I am well aware that that is difficult. Right. <laughs> like, Slim pickings these days, Matthias. Slim pickings, you know. <laughs> I like. I know. Like, I am not saying that with any kind of flippancy. I realize, like, com- often online community is the only community we can find. Right. And if that is true, that that online community is the only place we have it. It still points back to how are we regulating our bodies? How are we regulating our nervous systems? Because because that's what actually starts to help us heal is finding new environments in which to be able to regulate to. And, And I talk about this in the book so much. Like we are products of the environments that we have been in and are in. Our nervous systems regulate to the environments we are currently in. Mm. To be able to heal, we have to find new environments and then be able to work with the reality that our nervous systems are going to say, this is dangerous because it's unfamiliar, (laughs) but also uh, negotiate with that. But it may be safer. We can talk more about that. But it, it really comes back to, yeah, regulation and and therefore healing. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. 
let's talk about that, actually. Uh, and it seems like you know this might tie more into what you talk about in the book. I think that one of the riddles I find myself in a lot is, like you said, with you know, with having a screen in front of you, you can you can project whatever you want, and the goal is healing. What are the steps to healing? And I, I need to, I want to speak carefully here because I would not say I've ever had legit church trauma, like in the in the actual sense. I've had church hurt. I've I had a thing happen where I, you know my church just told me to either choose this work or stop working with them. So I definitely have experienced betrayal of friends. I've experienced that, but it's nothing like um, a narcissistic pastor who's like, you know, abusing a parishioner. So I, I don't want to use that term for my experience. Um, but I, I did have to go through, you know, the anger and the bitterness and like the therapy where I said, fuck a lot, my therapy sessions and, mm-hmm. you know, like all that stuff. Right. And I had to get to a point where I had to learn how to start my own healing process. So I could channel that anger into something more constructive than just my own bitterness, right? Mm-hmm. And I, certainly we don't want to tell people what they must and mustn't do, but you as a psychologist, as someone who does see clients, you know, what are some of the broad strokes uh, approaches to this stuff that maybe balances, or I don't know if that's the right word, forgive me, but maybe is a both and of like, we can't control what happened to you, right? But you're here now. So how do we help you take control back to promote your healing? How do you navigate yeah. that? Yes, yeah. First, I, I just want to be really clear with our language because I think it's important. I, I'm yes. not a psychologist. <laughs> like, oh, I don't I'm have sorry. A, I don't have a PhD. Um, but I realize like that is one of those semantics things that people outside the field don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but just okay. to be really clear, though, because <laughs> I could get in trouble. <laughs> yes, right. No, I didn't know that. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Um, <laughs> good uh, so I, I think one of the most difficult things around healing is that, in my opinion, there are no actual steps. I mean, sure, there are things we can do, but I can't sit here and say step one, step two, step three, Mm. because it's so individualized to our own experiences of Mm. harm. Uh, What may be traumatizing to one person may not be traumatizing to the person sitting right next to them in the same space. That makes sense. So, So it is so particular to our own experiences. So if we start to generalize, though, the first thing is, how well do you know your own story of harm? Hmm. Can you start to identify, this is what was harmful to me? Often that, that is deeply related to our stories of how we grew up, too. Like Those things are not, we don't exist in a vacuum. <laughs> the, the ways we were raised within our families of origin have direct relationship to what we experience as harmful later on in our lives. So, so once we start picking that thread of harm, we usually start to unravel a whole picture of harm. <laughs> uh, and, and then that thread starts to give us a compass for where we need to start to find healing. And we can start to follow that thread asking questions of what do our bodies feel? What are maybe the emotions we weren't able to feel in those harmful places? Often, when we're in systems of abuse, our body shut down and, and you know, we, we dissociate from feeling because it's not safe. Mm. So part of healing is being able to re-experience a lot of those things that we couldn't feel. So, so, this may already start to feel jumbled <laughs> in how I'm talking, but that is because 
I, there is not a step-by-step system. Mm. It, it is, we have to be so attuned to our own stories in order to be able to find that, that kind of compass towards where does it hurt? Do you see maybe a different way of asking that then would be, do you see common ingredients that people use and they bake their own cake that looks different that leads to perhaps their own human flourishing and healing? Yeah. Yes. One I think is we're going to go back to community Mm -hmm. being able to find other people who say me too. I've experienced that as well. Yeah. Starting to be able to work with other people around our own hurt One, it starts to help normalize the reality of of harm. We realize we're not the only ones. But two, we start to see like, oh, here's how other people are are managing and dealing Mm. with this. So community is huge. And and then another huge piece is practice of self-compassion, which easier said than done. (laughs) It's really easy for me to say practice self-compassion. It's another thing to build it. um, But but learning how to treat our own selves, our own hurt, which often we want to separate from, with a, a level of you know, compassion and warmth yeah. that starts to bring those parts of ourselves back into our own internal community so those things can can dialogue and, and ultimately regulate. One of the things that I, and I would love to know if you, if you talk about this in the book, uh, regarding the community piece in, in particular, mm-hmm. And so, so sometimes folks will ask me, like, you know, how do I find, they might use the word safe, like a safe church or something. And I tell people, first off, I'm not an expert in this. This is not my field. Okay. But if you're asking my personal opinion, what I tend to say is like, listen, I think in my experience, like community or church, whatever you want to call it, is always a risk. Like you always are risking opening yourself back up to something going wrong. And also I, and we try and make sure that we don't use the word safe space with our content because how do you really guarantee that for again our facebook group there's seven thousand people in there how do i guarantee (laughs) for seven thousand people digitally that our space is safe for them right but we try and of course have boundaries and we have rules that hopefully try and maintain openness and respectfulness so that's a little bit different but i tell people all the time like listen community isn't always safe i mean any relationship isn't inherently safe me and my spouse we have trust we build up that trust but like in theory, one of us could do anything at any time that could totally mm-hmm. blow that thing up, right? How do you navigate for people when they are looking for community but also have experienced trauma? How do we navigate those expectations versus the reality, but also being wise, look for signs of what might be a healthier space? Is it maybe a better word than safe versus an unhealthy space? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I just want to echo what you just what you just said. Like th- Essentially, there is no such thing as a safe space. <laughs> there's, I don't think there's such thing as a safe church. Right. Uh, the, 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 the reality of community is that harm will happen. But, but I think where we can get stuck is, I mean, I think about this in any relationship. Harm is a given. Like <laughs> any relationship, there will be harm. And if there is not harm, we may not actually be showing up to the relationship right. in uh, genuine ways. The question is, can we repair that harm? Yes. That's and that is foundational. And, and I think for so many of us, especially in our church settings, we have not had repair actually modeled to us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Someone come, you know, expresses an opinion that goes against the grain, everything falls apart. They get 
you know, excommunicated instead of being able to be held in community in, in a way that actually allows people to, to show up. So that would be, you know, when you're looking for a new community, <laughs> noticing how they're able to handle repairing harm may be a good indicator as to whether the community is safe enough for you to participate in. Mm. But the other thing that I think is really key here is it may take leaving those communities that you know and have been part of and finding entirely different forms of community yeah. to relearn what community can look like, yeah. to, to re, again, I'll, I'll say, like regulate our nervous systems, <laughs> to then allow us to return to those previous spaces and know in an embodied sense what feels good and what doesn't. So mm. it might mean leave church for a season, go find a pickleball league. Right. Go right. start hanging out with a new community of friends. Uh, there's a therapist who works with religious trauma whose name is uh, Abby Wong Hefter. And, and she always talks about, do you feel a sense of delight when you walk into a room with a community? Mm. Can you tell that these folks delight in you? Yeah. If you, if you can't, then can you find a community that does like right. big and small movements of tuning back into, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe? Do I feel like I can express hurt and have it heard? All of those things go into this question of, how do I start to find safe enough communities again? Yeah. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. And I've often found, and I want to be also clear with my words, that sometimes I've met people in my own personal life, right, who maybe have experienced some level of like a church hurt situation, right? And sometimes I have found that they'll find new communities. They can maybe miss that they can also still be complicit in harming other people too, right? Oh, like, yeah. hey, mm -hmm. like we all have the ability to do a lot of good or a lot of a lot of bad, right? And so it's tricky because yeah. you know I I had an experience in my life that was really beautiful of like what community could look like. I was like in my, in my mid twenties with like thirty different people and like a, almost a small group kind of thing, and it was really beautiful. Like we were hanging out and we were together all the time. And I learned pretty quickly, like like you said, it wasn't so much about were things perfect. It was how did we repair or you know say our that we were sorry whenever we we messed up or we said something that hurt someone, right? And I quickly learned that for me, that was a two way street. Like my words could cut down someone easily. I thought I was joking. They didn't take it that way, right? And also, mm -hmm. someone else's actions could make me feel like 
you know, garbage, right? And yeah. so that reminded me even then that like humans are not these binaries of like this person is automatically always this thing and this person is automatically always this thing. But depending on the context and the situation, we could be either one or sometimes even both. And that's what yep. makes, I think, this conversation so complicated. And of course, online, you, it's hard to get into this kind of nuance because maybe thousands of people are reading it from their different experience, right? And so you don't want to set someone off or, or activate them unintentionally. But I just think like when it comes, I've been thinking so much about this over the past few months because it's just been on my mind about like, okay, this digital community thing, like, like what does it look like? How do we do that? And man, it is just, there's a lot of like, a lot of simultaneous values that are competing and pulling in different directions at the same time. And that yeah. could be a lot. That could be very yes. tricky. <laughs> so tricky. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I do not envy the folks who are trying to figure out how to do this uh, digitally. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even sure long term. Like, you know, yeah. Anyway, that's a different discussion. But uh, yeah. I, I, I think ultimately, <laughs> I am someone who believes in whatever people, people can do to find people in their life that, that they can call up, people that, that they can have dinner with, those random, you know, target runs, whatever, like those friendships for me is where real life happens more than any screen, unfortunately can facilitate at this point. Maybe one day we'll all be in the metaverse 24 seven, like out of a movie. I don't know, but we're not there yet. And I still think that the, that, that the human proximity is key. Let's talk about the nervous system. You, you mentioned this like a couple times now. I've heard bits and pieces of this through different creators that I follow and that I really respect. Talk to me about how important the nervous system is in this experiencing trauma, right? And then maybe finding ways to heal from trauma. It is in, in the way I'm trained in the way I think about it, it is absolutely key mm. <laughs> because we're, we're talking about our bodies, um, not just our bodies, our entire experience and how it can either be harmed or healed. And so, so when we experience trauma, it, 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 a simple definition of it is when something ends up being too much for us. And that is so particular to a person by person. Yeah, right. Definitely. Basis. Like <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> we experience yeah. something that is too much. And, and so then we start to fracture, dissociate. Uh, we usually start to isolate. Um, it, it is an experience of something that is too much. So fragmentation dissociation, isolation, th those three categories are usually good definitions of what happened after we've experienced trauma. So not just harm, but harm, harm that has turned into trauma has been traumatic. I, I will say there, to keep harm from becoming traumatic, we have to be able to get that harm to someone who can help us integrate our own experience. Mm. If we don't have that, then it can turn into trauma. So all of those words, <laughs> integration, dissociation, fragmentation, all of those are words that, that describe our nervous systems and, and what is happening within our nervous systems. I'll pause. Are you tracking with me or does that feel like a bunch of jumble? <laughs> I think I'm tracking with you. I yeah. think I believe the audience is tracking with you for sure. Great. You know, I think for a lot of people, these are Words that we hear a lot, right? And we're like, okay, like it's almost like the term deconstruction sometimes. Like, okay, what are we actually yeah. talking about when we mention the word deconstruction, right? And so, mm -hmm. and that's that's okay. Sometimes words can be a little obtuse and flexible for different contexts. So, yeah, I think I'm definitely following uh, for sure. You know, I think I was my first 
wake up call that my nervous system can betray me very quickly was when I went through a random, like almost light switch moment of just anxiety and panic attacks that like shaped my entire life. It lasted mm -hmm. for almost two and a half years. My body was just in fight or flight. And I still don't know exactly why nothing happened to me. It just was a, I had a panic attack wa watching the new Jumanji movie, which is now old. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think I'm dying. I think I'm about to die. Like, I think I'm just going to mm -hmm. die right now. And that was like the first moment that led me on this crazy you know, journey in my own life. And I was learning more about, yeah, your nervous system is in fight or flight. You want to start, you know, taking care of your body more. You want to thank your body for trying to protect you, like just speaking more kindly to it. And it took a lot of time, but eventually things, you know, got more manageable through therapy and other, and other reasons. So I do think that a lot of times, especially in the church, because we're taught everything is just so spiritual that we right. don't really, we don't really consider the embodied part portion of having those feelings of maybe anxiety or experiencing something traumatic, like you said, and then our body reacting to it, we just see it as a spiritual problem that maybe more prayer will answer. Yes, right. Or that we can like think or reason our ways out of. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and Someone told is... me one time, I'm not sure if this is true. You tell me. I was listening to one of these like podcast guru people who claim to be a psychologist. So I, I believe them, of course. They're like, listen, <laughs> the part of your brain responsible for fight or flight and for fear, all that. It can't hear English. Like it doesn't react yeah. to thoughts. That's just not how it works. You can't tell it to turn off. It doesn't hear you. And I was right. like, oh, that yes. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like why I keep right. saying, don't feel scared, don't feel scared. And yet you're only fucking terrified all the time. Is that true? Yes. It is true. Okay, yeah. look when, at that. When, <laughs> <laughs> when we go into flight or flight, our so our amygdala, which is that that part that is responsible for keeping us safe takes over in our hippocampus, which is the part that of our brain, this is really simplistic, but the part of our brain that is responsible for language, for thought, etc. The amygdala actually hijacks the hippocampus <laughs> right. uh, and, and shuts it down. Mm. So, and that is where this fragmentation starts to come from. Mm. We literally fragment uh, in our memory, <laughs> in our thought, because our brain cannot hold these pieces together. Mm. And those parts of our brain that are responsible for that are actually going offline as our amygdala kind of takes over. And it's one question is, am I safe or am I not safe? <laughs> and if I'm not safe, we need to get out of here. Right. And yeah, so th that is that is true. That's a bad feeling, by the way. Can I just say that? I've oh, been yeah. there for a long, I lost like 30 pounds in two months. I wasn't eating. Mm. It was horrible. I mean, I would just yeah. wake up like I was ready to run a marathon at five o'clock in the morning. Mm. So, and I, I will say as a human, it grew my empathy immensely for people who have mentioned in my past, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, but when, and my response was so calloused, you know, in my head, well, just go outside, like just go for a walk, like look, yeah. look life is great, you know? And, right. you know, people don't understand until it happens to you. And then yes. you're like, holy shit, like this is mm. this is no joke. And you do feel out of control. Like You do yeah. feel like the cognitive part of you is like, I know everything is fine. I know even in proximity I'm, for my situation, I was safe. I had a great partner and everything. Yet my body was like, there is a lion hunting you down. And at any minute you could be mauled to death. And yes. it was that way for like over a year. And right. that, woo, that mm -hmm. wears on you immensely. It does. And, and, you know, I think if we put what you're talking about into an experience of like leaving 
church communities yeah. and then trying to walk back into a church. Like I had an experience of where I, you know, after college, I moved out to Seattle. I didn't go to church for a while. Mm-hmm. Then I found this like uh, open and affirming church where queer people could be in leadership. And I was like, great, this is, this Sign is where I want to go. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I, and I walk into church and start having very similar experience to what you just described. I was looking around. I was really hypervigilant. I was yes. waiting for someone to like attack me. Mm. And it was, was saying to myself, like, this is a safe church. Like, right. I'm allowed to be in leadership here. And like, I, I couldn't get out of that church fast enough. I forced myself to stay, which wasn't the best idea, but like, mm. I got out of there as quickly as possible. And that kind of experience, I mean, it makes sense to me why so many folks who have been hurt by churches don't ever want to go back. <laughs> yeah. But I do think there are ways that we can start to heal those responses mm. so that again we can we can find communities where it doesn't you know trigger that anymore today we discuss miro listen when it comes to running client workshops the dream of course is to get those creative juices flowing right but typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings so i have maya with me today she's a consultant who runs fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building and she has the insider tip on what makes things work maya thank you jason i've been doing this a long time my number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform Platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O.com. From where you sit, and maybe this sounds redundant, I don't know, but um, what is the goal of healing? Mm. Like, meaning, when when someone can say, I've healed, what is that result for from someone in, in, who's on the other side of the chair, right? You have a client. We, we, we can make up some kind of scenario. They had a real traumatic church experience, right? It's really messed them up. Their body is activated. Their nervous system is going crazy. Maybe they're really angry, rightfully so. They're just like furious, right? <laughs> and they go, and you're thinking, okay, like how do we get this person back to their human flourishing? This, what is the result? Because obviously that happened to them. They can't change that. I don't even think it's safe to say that 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 they can go back to who they ever were. Right. So like, what's the end result of like a healed individual from something like that in this hypothetical scenario? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think one, and, and I'm borrowing some of this language from Dr. Laura Anderson, who's an expert in religious trauma. She founded the Religious Trauma Institute. Mm. But she she talks about, like, if we define healing as a place that we can eventually get to, we're setting ourselves up for intense you know, frustration and discouragement, mm. because that goalpost is always going to move. <laughs> we're going to look around and see people who seem to be more healed than us, and how do we right. get there? Like, right. so... I think like using that language of healed, I will be healed when uh, it is a false starting place. <laughs> I, 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 for me, w- when I'm thinking about the process of healing, my question is, how can we learn how to sit with our own experience for just a few minutes longer? Mm. How do we learn how to be able to feel whatever feeling is coming up 
and that doesn't then trigger this fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. That is a lot of work because moving from panic <laughs> to I am feeling anger or I am feeling sadness or I am feeling like I need to get out of this space and being able to actually sit with it and integrate it into our experience, there's a huge distance between those two things. Mm. So, so for, for me, healing is learning how to be with our own selves and mm. in our own experiences w- without having to get, get out. That's helpful. I think that's helpful. I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm assuming, I don't know who listens to the podcast. Obviously, you don't know your your actual listener base individually, but I, I think a lot of people have had some kind of what they would say is a harmful church experience or something that maybe really shaped their feelings about church in a negative way now is maybe the best, maybe the, the most neutral way to put it. And I do think that there are a good chunk of people who have kind of been with me on my own journey since I started this account of kind of going through like, you know, whatever the phases are of this. And I think a lot of folks are like, okay, I'm starting to feel a little more like, like maybe myself or maybe even a little more, you know, not past it, but I, I'm, I'm looking back more from a place of I've learned so much more than I'm so angry at what happened to me. Right. I, I, I get it, but like, I'm just, I'm, I can't be there forever. And so I think a lot of people now are like, okay, like, what do I do? with this faith thing I've been given. Like I tell people all the time, I've been radicalized for Jesus in my faith tradition. Like that, that, Mm -hmm. that pathway is formed. It's not going away. It just is what it is. I'm not looking to re I'm not looking to find a brand new house. I know nothing about, uh, that we call a different religion only to find that, Hey, they're not perfect either. And they have their own bullshit (laughs) that they're working through. You know, (laughs) I don't want to do that. I'm very committed to the way of Jesus. And I'm, I, I, this is the house I'm in. I I love it. But, what do we do now? You know, I'm like, I think that some people in this, in the deconstruction space is, and they're, they have a right to do this. Of course, I'm not knocking them, but it's like, I want to tear it down and stand on top of the rubble. I'm like, Hey, I get it. And some of these places should be torn down. Like, you know, the SBC, for example, we'll be just fine without them. Like we'll be just fine without Hillsong church doing their nonsense. (laughs) Also, I think that there are some people who, because of these experiences that you're mentioning are like, but I also want to think about like better ways forward, you know, like, is it possible to build an accountable community? Is it possible to build a healthier space that can manage conflict better, that can make some room and we can try and communicate any thoughts on that from like, from, 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 from your lens of like how you, you would form maybe like Jesus centered communities, we can say that might be a little bit healthier compared to what we've experienced in the past. You know, I, th- I think a lot of my f- my ideas around this are are half formed because we we don't have a ton of models for what this looks like. I think this is something that we are as a collective uh, asking. Yeah. <laughs> Do I think it's possible? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yeah. Like I I so mm. you know I play I play with this in the book a little bit, but you know there's this word you know ecclesia that yes, uh, yes. in in the scriptures that that you know often you know gets translated as you know church or a gathering of people or you know community or whatever you know we use it often and apply right. it to churches there's there's this womanist theologian named uh, Dr. Kirk Dugan uh, who defines ecclesia or plays with this definition of ecclesia as simply being a group of friends and hmm. as i sat with that idea and played with it 
you know, all of these ideas of what I was taught about this kind of early New Testament church, <laughs> which, you know, everyone goes back to that, oh. that idea. Like, let's <laughs> see, <laughs> right. like, like the Acts church, you know, they right, broke right, right every like, day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing new here. I'm doing the same thing. But, no, I love it. I love it. Do it. But, but that idea of a group of friends felt really kind of liberating to me. Yeah. Because it gave me a different idea of like, okay, a group of friends functions really differently than what my idea of a church functions. <laughs> like those right. are two different things, but yeah. what if they don't have to be? Right. So I don't have much more than that. Like I, I think we get yeah. to imagine. And, and I think the question I often ask people is like, what if you actually get to decide what you want to do with this faith thing? Like, yeah. what if you get to choose I think we're often scared of that idea, but I think we're in a place where we get to start to play in these arenas. And I mean, yeah. play very literally. Yeah. And see what emerges. No, I, I think that's good. You know, I do. And I, I think that I, I always, people ask sometimes on Instagram, like, you know, what's your idea of like a dream church? And it's like, listen, a bunch of people committed to Jesus and their neighbor, you know, and then also realizing that community has to be intentional. You know, I think that sometimes, especially in our society, right? We're so individualistic naturally as a Western society. America is even more individualistic than most other Western societies. And we saw that during COVID, right? I mean, and unfortunately yeah. from, from so many Christians, it's not my yeah. problem. I'm not wearing a mask, you know, kind of thing. So you have like other forces at work besides just like the church element, right? And then, mm-hmm. and then the modern church is more corporatized than it is community centered. It's more event centered. So I do think it is possible to like reimagine but you need people who are willing to put in that work. Like it takes mm-hmm. you blocking out time out of your schedule and saying maybe no to something else and saying yes to these people. And then what happens when some of those people annoy you just because they're just who they are? And then yeah. like, what's the answer there is the answer is you find new people that you'll just always get along with. That's just like not realistic, right? So it's interesting because I love to dream. Like it's a lot of fun. I'm a huge, I will sit with people in a room and just dream like what could we do, right? Mm. But then once you try it, you have to be aware of like, hey, there's other dynamics at play. Like, We all have to give and take to a degree to do our best to make something formed that is deeply rooted. And that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes community community, right? Is that you are sticking your hands in someone else's mud and vice versa and saying, I will hold space for you, my friend. Like I will I will be there when, when it's uncomfortable. I, I'm, we're not assuming abuse, clearly. We're not assuming yes, like narcissistic sure. pastors and stuff. So yeah, I, I'm with you. It's just kind of fun to daydream with people like, like like yourself who are you know more informed about about the trauma side of things than I am. Of like, yeah, I think a lot of people dream about a community, but it's like, are you willing to put in the work? Because it takes a lot of freaking work to make this stuff happen. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, let's get back to your book really quick. We got we have a few minutes left here. You broke it up into seven different parts. Is that correct? And then yep. you have like sub. Are, are they sub chapters underneath each one? Is that how you did it? Yeah. So I, I actually like that format because I feel much more accomplished if I read for five minutes and, and complete a chapter <laughs> versus like yes. right now I'm going through a book that's like each chapter is like 55, 60 pages. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. my God, 20 more pages. I can't do it. Is, mm-hmm. Was that intentional? Why did you break it up that way? It was very intentional. OK, yes. cool. And, and for <laughs> for that exact reason, like Thank there's you. a lot of. There's a lot of psychology around that. <laughs> I was like, I was researching like, what's the best format for a book like that will keep people reading, but also you know help people want to read. Like, and a lot of the research points to to this kind of format, which mm. is and it's it, for me the way I write. 
the the kind of you know fifteen hundred to two thousand words feels like a really good kind of sweet spot yeah. for me to get an idea out, and then we can play with all of these ideas and help them flow together. And it was it was a really fun way to write. Are there any like portions of the book that you really were like? this this i i'm in my zone here i'm in the creative zone like people need to hear this you know you're talking to a lot of people who really i think resonate with what you're saying you're like oh my god that's my experience any portion that you want to highlight here of like listen this is a book that's worth reading and like here's the reason why for me and this is why i wrote the book mm. <laughs> but i have found so much healing in the ways that the philosopher Rene Girard talks about yes. human systems yeah. and models of human desire. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the parts of the book where I really unpack some of that and then play with these ideas around what it actually means for healing, that gets me really excited mm. <laughs> because not only are we talking about, you know, an individual healing, but we're talking about systems. And, and so Girard, and then there's this theologian named James Allison, who's contemporary He's a, he's a gay Catholic priest hmm. who's one of the foremost uh, scholars on Rene Girard alive right now. Uh, but he integrates that with with theology. His work I, I play with in the book as well. Like that gets me so excited because <laughs> I think it help it will help all of us help readers kind of understand what are we working on the working with on the psychological level, right. but also what are we working with on the theological level, which then starts to give us, I think, a different vision for what human community can look like. I love that. I was talking to someone who has been around this kind of more progressive, quote unquote, world for a while. And he said something that I thought was so interesting. He said, you know, back at like when the emergent church was kind of doing its thing, it was very theology centered. It was very about like, what's what's the theology of things? And he said, this new wave is much more um, like trauma-informed centered. It's much more yeah. about like the the feeling of what happened, the, the reality of what happened that affects me as the person. I was like, wow, like, that's a really interesting observation. And I think that's really good and needed. I mean, we need to have people who can say honestly what happened to them. Too often we see from big, powerful institutions, you know, people covering up legitimate abuse. And the SBC is yeah. one example of many. Um, but I do think, to your point, Matthias, that the theology for those who want to stay in the house of Christian thought, like there is some rich, deep, brilliant theological paradigms that I think can really help us move as we move forward with our healing on the maybe psychological level, but also on that theological level of how we even think about God that yep. I just think we shouldn't be missing out on because it's it's so helpful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, in this book, I, I present it for me, my vision of what has helped me yeah. stay within this realm of Christianity Yeah, may not be for everyone, but it was really fun yeah. <laughs> to, to play with all of those ideas, yeah. both psychologically and theologically. Yeah. Well, I love that. Well, listen, friends, the book is Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion. It is out October 3rd, which probably means it's out now based on my release schedule. So make sure you pick it up. I'm assuming it's available wherever books are sold, Amazon. Your, yep. do, do you have a website? Do you have your own you know, Instagram? Yep. I'm Matthias Roberts across social media and online. I love it. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for making time. Thanks so much, Tim. Got it.
Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list for me. 